to the fifth series of Well, I Know Now. Very sadly, there's one person who won't be with us this time. And though I never met him in person, he seemed like a friend. No sooner had a podcast aired than Derek Fisher, tireless advocate for those with dementia, would send me a really thoughtful and supportive message. It feels very strange to be starting this series knowing that I won't hear anything from this lovely man whose missives to me and constant campaigning showed the positive power that can be found in social media. Rest in peace, Derek. You will be sorely missed. Well, I Know Now is the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. I've chatted to people living with dementia, those looking after them, to actors, poets, artists, musicians, filmmakers, and best-selling authors. And every one of them has taught me something new about dementia, about me, about life. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum, Kay, lived with vascular dementia for her last decade. At the time, my family and I knew virtually nothing about the condition. We were worried, frightened and overwhelmed, and possibly in denial about what might be wrong with mum. Sadly, that's an all too common scenario. Now though, through my campaigning, I know so much more about this cruel set of diseases. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life with dementia. I know it's down to all of us to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well I know now, a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this too. My guest today doesn't know this, but she truly is my inspiration. And without her, I would not have set up my blog, become a dementia campaigner, or launched this podcast. I first encountered her back in 2013 at the Independent Age Awards, where she was named Best Independent Voice on Older People's Issues. I was one of those shortlisted alongside her, and it was at the ceremony in central London that I first heard this young woman's incredible story of how her dairy farmer father had developed vascular dementia when she was 12, and how his condition, with which he lived for a further 19 years, came to dominate her teens and 20s, as she willingly sacrificed her chance of further education and a full-time career to focus on supporting him. During those almost two decades, her father experienced what she describes as a myriad of health and social care services that varied from excellent to exceptionally poor. What all the experiences had in common, she says, was what could be learnt from them to improve knowledge, awareness and care for all. To this end, after her father died in 2012, she set up her blog, D for Dementia, to provide support for people facing the many and complex challenges that she and her family experienced. She sought to promote debate, improve dementia care, and educate both care professionals and the wider population. By 2013, when I met her, she already had a sizable and rapidly growing social media presence and was a serious dementia campaigner. I was taken aback by her personal story and deeply impressed by all she'd achieved and how she'd done it. To be honest, I'd never really thought about how one individual could make such a difference. And I remember feeling certain that not only was this woman by far the worthiest winner of the night, 
but that none of us other contenders came anywhere near challenging her for the title. She is, of course, Beth Britton. And alongside her successful 10-year-old blog sit a raft of other accomplishments. She helped plan and deliver the UK government's first G8 Dementia Summit in 2013. She is a consultant, trainer and mentor who's had roles with care homes and charities, government departments and national bodies such as Public Health England and the Care Quality Commission. Her list of public appearances and speeches is very, very long and she often pops up on radio and television where she's never less than polished, fluent and knowledgeable. She brings her professionalism, empathy and experience to bear on topics as profound as end-of-life care and as seemingly mundane but hugely important and detailed as skin integrity and swallowing issues. Running through all her work as through mine is her passion to ensure that the traumas and difficulties that she and her family experienced are turned into something positive. And in this, I think it's fair to say, she's succeeded. So Beth Britton, welcome to Well I Know Now. Thank you very much, Pippa. That was a lovely introduction. Well, I'm always terrified that I've got great chunks of people's introductions wrong, but anyway, I hope I haven't. Um, First, I think we've really just got to talk about one person here, and that's your dad. And about, in particular, what I'd like to talk to you about is the excellent care he received. I believe he received outstanding end-of-life care. And so I'd like to talk to you about what that entailed, what it looks like. But also, sadly, as with my own dad, actually, as well as my mum, the exceptionally poor care that he received. I know that in one of his care homes, he suffered pressure ulcers, aspirated on his own vomit and developed catastrophic pneumonia. So just start by telling us a bit about the highs and lows of your dad's care and in keeping with the theme of this podcast, what you've learned from them. So really, Pepper, you know, it's very strange when your family member is diagnosed with dementia and you're told they can't return home and you have to find a care home for them. You are plunged into a world that you know, we certainly at that point know, knew really nothing about at all. And dad went on to live in three different care homes. The first one, they really couldn't cope with him. It was a residential home. They didn't have the staffing. So dad would be absolutely amazing when we were with him because he had that Mm. one-to-one. But when we weren't there, he tried to strangle someone. Um, So he was sent back to hospital and he spent six months where we had that wrangle between who was going to pay for his care. Mm. Um, We went through the process of continuing healthcare funding. Yes. And it's such a traumatic experience that so many families and, you know, eventually we chose a care home that we felt was the right place for him. And we chose it purely on the staff, not the aesthetics. Mm. And I'm very, very passionate that there's a lot of care facilities that look very lovely. They've got great window dressing. They look like hotels. But if the care, if the people don't underpin the care that you need and they don't provide that right ethos and that right culture of care, then it doesn't matter how great it looks because you're not going to have a good experience. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more with that. So we, we found eventually a care home, as I say, not aesthetically pleasing, but the staff impressed us. And they did some amazing things in the eight years that dad was there. They identified a key worker for my dad, a guy called Joe. Sadly, he died last year. I'm still in touch with his family. It's nearly 10 years now since my dad died, but I'm still in touch with his daughter and his wife. And mm. they told me when he'd passed away. Mm. But he had an amazing rapport with my dad. And my dad mm. was someone who'd never travelled abroad. He'd never had much contact with people who weren't sort of 
of outside of the UK, really. He was a farmer. Mm. His main contact was with animals. Mm. But Joe was Filipino. And my mm. dad and Joe just formed the most amazing relationship. So that was mm. one of the real highs. And another real high for us would probably have been dad's love of music. I wrote a blog where I said when my dad could no longer hold a conversation because he lost the ability largely to communicate in mm. his latter years with dementia, he could still sing a song. Mm. And it was quite revelatory for us, really. We um, we got rid of my dad's TV quite early on. Ironically, mm. he smashed it on the floor. I think he was trying to tell me something. <laughs> yeah. um, he smashed it on the floor. So I thought, OK, we, we're not going to try and replace that. Let's try mm. a CD player instead. Um, that was before we had sort of the digital sort mm. of Alexas and options we have now. And the CD player was amazing. And that just became dad's absolute lifeline. And when he could no longer have a conversation, he could still sing words for mm. word with perfect timing. Yeah songs that meant so much to him mm. so I think music was really revelatory for us and also mm. like many families I was nagged to do life story work the care home had, had bought some some boxes they wanted to, to populate with some pictures and little mementos for people and like many families I put it off because it was kind of in the too hard box oh I've got to go and find photos and do this and do that but I eventually did it and I captioned everything that I put into that box and everybody visitors or staff would go past his room my dad loved to be in his room he was quite a private man and they would see things in there and they would talk to him about them and that was amazing as well and those particularly passions like that alongside sort of environment work for people with dementia have become things that I've really sort of have stuck with me to this day and things that I really champion mm. so that was the amazing stuff that was some of the amazing stuff the poor stuff unfortunately as you alluded to was very very poor so the care home that my dad spent over eight years in was eventually owned by Southern Cross who in 2011 were the biggest care home provider in the country when they went Southern out Cross. business Southern Cross, mm, yes. Yeah, yeah. And the home was taken over by another big provider, but literally the, the, the care changed overnight. The manager was replaced, half the staff left. Yeah. At one point they had an agency member of staff who didn't even know which resident was rich and he was just doling mm. out the jugs based on what he thought was the right thing to do mm. um, rather than anything remotely scientific. But they installed a manager into the home who I honestly couldn't believe she was a registered nurse and I actually checked the register of nurses because I couldn't believe she could be a nurse. Mm. She was changing his care plan without any consultation with us. They were not observing the very strict guidance that was up on his wall yeah. from the speech and language therapist to support him with his dysphasia, his swallowing problems. Yeah. And eventually he developed the pressure ulcers that you've mentioned already. And then one night he aspirated on his own vomits. He was rushed to hospital. The consultant said it was a bit like pouring acid into your lungs. Crikey. They didn't expect him to survive. He did survive the night and, and, and you know, the days after that. But um, they were pumping him full of antibiotics and it wasn't doing any good. And they said, look, I'm sorry, but, you know, we, we, we're going to run out of options here. I'm afraid he is going to die. I didn't want him to die in hospital because, as I said, my dad was a very private man. Mm. And we were very lucky to find a care home that would take him. Uh, the manager came out to assess him. They prepared the room the next day. And then he moved in the day before his birthday, his 85th birthday. And they made him a cake and they made him so welcome. He couldn't really eat it, but they were amazing. And he went on to spend just under two weeks there. The manager drafted in extra staff. They managed to give him an amazing bath. He hadn't had a bath in weeks. So they, they drafted in extra staff. I think they had about five members of staff in the end that helped him have this beautiful mm, bath. Mm, mm. And in the last few days, they were still ordering him food. They said, well, look, there's life, there's hope. You just never know. Mm. And the support they gave us was amazing. And I am still in touch again with a couple of the nurses in that home. 
Which home was that, Beth? Because So that was a Fremantle home and it was called right. Lewin House. And Fremantle are a not-for-profit provider. And actually it was our first experience of a not-for-profit provider. And it was a very different ethos. I'm not mm. saying that, that mm. that is across the board that you will find that with every not-for-profit provider. But it was a very different ethos. And when I spoke at the um, National Care Forum conference in November 2019, so just before the pandemic mm. here, that was my last major speaking engagement. I talked about, my keynote there was all about actually working with families and how can we do this well and there was some Fremantle staff in the audience and I mentioned the care that my dad had had in those last few days and they came to speak to me afterwards it's an ethos Pippa it's you you, you know you either create a, the right culture within a care home or you don't I don't think it particularly matters whether the provider makes a profit or not but it comes from the top and it trickles down and as I say I've seen both sides of that the good and the bad I think that's true of so many organizations whether it be schools or or companies actually I think ethos is hugely important Beth you're so articulate I could listen to you I don't really need to say anything but I've picked up on a lot of things there because I've done a bit of research about you one is Obviously, you know my huge passion for music with people in dementia and how it can enhance people's lives. But when I was researching you, I didn't realise that actually you've hidden your light under a bushel a bit because you are, <laughs> <laughs> you've sung yourself, haven't you, in care homes? I didn't realise that you were musical yourself. Yeah. Look, I saw the effect that, that singing had on my dad and they would sometimes get sort of an Elvis Presley impersonator in or something. Mm. My dad loathed rock and roll, so that didn't work mm. at all for mm. him. And he'd be wheeled down there and he hated it. But they did also have some people that came in to do some lovely things. Mm. And because, as you've alluded to, I put career and everything on hold. I went to train to be a singer. I mean, we've always kind of enjoyed singing in our family. Mm. Um, I'm very much a singer in the shower. (laughs) But I went and had some singing lessons. I bought myself a sort of a 1940s swirly dress. Mm. And I would curl my hair up and make myself look quite glamorous. And yes, I went and did some, Mm. some gigs in care homes. I wouldn't say in any way, shape or form I'm a good singer. Please don't ask me to sing anything. Um, but, uh, but I think it brought some people some joy and that was beautiful. And mm. there was a particular picture of me when I did a gig in my dad's home and it's mm. me singing to him. Mm. Um, mm. You have indeed yeah. got curly it's, hair. It's priceless. Mm. it is is priceless actually not because of your curly hair although that is lovely but because of the the look on your dad's face I think that's why it's priceless the other thing that I wanted to pick up on there was the end of life care you looked to see which were your top 10 blogs you've written over well over 250 now and they were quite surprising actually one was end of life care which I don't think it is that surprising and just to concentrate on that for a moment I'm just going to quote a little bit of your own blog back at you so it's horrible when people do this but it shows well it shows a lot really I'll just I'll just read it even though the end was in sight dad was as valued by everyone in that care home as much as he would have been if they'd had all the time in the world left with him nothing was too much trouble dad was prioritised, never ignored, and his privacy and dignity were preserved at all times. In the hours after his passing, nurses and carers were equally affected, and as undertakers took Dad's body to chapel, the staff cried with us. Whatever training manuals say about not getting emotionally involved, it is the emotional involvement that brings out greatest compassion. I thought that was... You'd really said that about the way they just still prioritised your dad, you know, there was no inkling that this might be the end and they were still going to really look after him as very best they could. Also that it's this, you touched on this when you talked about how you choose a care home, it's the people, it's the emotions, it's not the aesthetics of the surroundings necessarily, although they're important, it's people and connections. I thought there's a lot contained within that really that 
speaks to the very best care. And I know that at the moment you're doing a lot, aren't you? Are you doing something with McIntyre Charity on end-of-life care for people with learning disabilities? That's right, yeah. So I, um, I've i worked with McIntyre since 2013. They, the longest client that I've worked with, they are a not-for-profit provider of support for people with learning disabilities and autism, and they support children and adults. So I've worked with them for many years around dementia. They now have the first, she was at the time, I don't know if she still is, the first ever learned disability Admiral Nurse. Um, and I know you're very passionate about Admiral Nurses mm. as well. So they do some fantastic stuff. But yes, they had some um, some funding from the big lottery fund to do a project around end of life care for people with a learning disability. Um, the project's called Dying to Talk. Mm. And basically, it's all about helping to facilitate those conversations because people with a learning disability historically have been very marginalised. Mm. You know, basically decisions about where they're going to die and what that's going to look like basically have been taken for them a lot in the Mm. past across the board and actually it's about having those conversations with people it's often been marked in that too difficult to do box you know Mm. how do you facilitate a conversation with a person with a learning disability people don't want to upset them you don't but actually there are many very sensitive very sort of person-centered ways in which you can do that so we've done a lot of staff training in phase one which I was involved with and now we're just rolling out into phase two So working with people supported and also their families as well, because that's very, very crucial that families are supported as well. Um, They've got a couple of fantastic documents that, frankly, anyone could use that are called the My Plan for Before I Die and the My Plan for After I Die. They're written in easy read, but, you know, they're very much for anyone to use. And it just takes you through, you know, those choices, the things that you'd want. And it includes some lovely things, you know, what smells do you like Mm. that, you know, you might Mm. want in your room? Mm. What music's important to you? Not just for your funeral, but, you know, Mm. for those last few days and things like that and it's very thought-provoking I'm not saying it's easy it's really tough conversations but it's so important that people regardless of disability have the chance to have those conversations and have some say in what happens to them because we only get one chance Absolutely. Um, to get someone's end of life right. So I'm really passionate about that. My main role in the project is um, working on resources. So we've started to do lots of blogs and, and pieces like that, but there's going to mm. be a lot more of that and, you know, some great social media stuff. We've got some really exciting things coming up. We've got Dying Matters Week in May. Mm. So we've got some great stuff coming up and it's a privilege to be involved with it and work alongside such an amazing team. You mm. know what it's like yourself when you make connections with people mm. who work in health and care um, yeah. and they, they prove to be so sort of influential for you and there's some great people out there doing some amazing stuff yes absolutely I've been amazed at the the people I've met you know with my dementia work it's incredible there are some really really inspirational people Uh, the other interesting point about when you looked at your top 10 blogs was that actually well in the lead at number one was something which I think surprised you and surprised me and and this is on swallowing on dysphagia and funnily enough with sort of consummate timing last week I recorded a podcast with a dysphagia chef because I'd come across her and so I've got Neve Condon coming on I don't know if you've heard of her but she does I haven't but that sounds fantastic yeah it is fantastic and actually What's so interesting, which I'm sure, you know, I've read your your swallowing blog and your blogs as ever are full of really useful, practical tips as well as, you know, research about other matters, but they're very practical, which is great. But when I talked to Neve, as well as the practicalities of it, I was struck with, as so often, a subject that seems sort of relatively mundane becomes quite philosophical because uh, without giving too much away of the podcast, Again, as with so much around dementia, and a lot of people with dementia do go on to develop swallowing problems, my mum did as well, there's a stigma involved. 
And Neve was explaining to me how stigmatic it can be when you can't swallow and when you're sort of going down that route and you start having to use your thickeners. And so she actually did it herself. You know, she, she did it for a week and had to use thickeners and went to a cafe and, you know, people were watching and thinking, what on earth is that woman doing when she's putting all this? They thought she was putting lots of sugar in her coffee. Of course it wasn't, it was a thickener and all this sort of thing. And it's just interesting how very sort of separated one becomes, how marginalised. And once again, it's this lack of understanding. It's just because people don't realise what's going on and, you know, people might snigger behind their hands or just not know how to react to something. And once you know what's going on, of course, you'd never dream of doing that. So I, I thought the whole episode with Neve was a complete eye to me. You know, I thought about it when my mum encountered that, and my dad did too, actually. But I hadn't thought about it deeply or for very long or considered it in the round, and it was very interesting to me. So I know it surprised you, didn't it, that your top blog was that one? It was. It did surprise me very much, and it remains that it is the top one. And I think it's just because the feedback I've had from so many families, not just in the UK but around the world, is that there's just not enough information out mm, there. Mm, People mm. aren't really supported about this so you might mm. be told yes your loved one's going to start to develop problems maybe speaking communicating with you they might start mm. to repeat you know they might struggle to drive a car anymore things like that but actually people don't really talk about things like dysphasia my dad no. had it for four years mm. um, and I say in my G8 Dementia Summit film I say you know we would take dad to cafes and for the last mm. four years of his life he had a swallowing problem mm. and we would have to spoon food into mm. his mouth food mm. and drinks and you will get looks from people mm. because mm. they're just not used to seeing it you've got mm. an adult mm. you know effectively supporting another adult to mm. eat and people you know they just don't know how, how to handle that but I think of all the conversations I've had around dysphagia I think one of the ones that absolutely sticks with me the story I always tell everybody is I, I had a particularly heart-rending email from um a man in Mexico, and he was looking after his dad with dysphasia. And how he'd found my blog, I don't quite know. He certainly didn't know it was called dysphasia. He said, you know, my dad's coughing when I try and give him anything to eat and drink. Mm. I think he's got some sort of problem with his swallowing. And your blog has just helped me understand so much. He said, there's no services that I can access out here. They don't have, or he didn't have access to a speech and language therapist. Mm. He had no help. He had no support. And actually, I think he found some of the tips and advice were really helpful. He wanted me to go further and I think do some sort of mock diagnosis, which I absolutely can't do. And you always have to say to people, I'm sorry, I can't, yeah. you know, I can't give you medical advice. Mm. But to know that you've helped people that by far and away is the thing that I set out to do from the very outset. And regardless of the awards and, and everything else that's come my way, which has been a wonderful and amazing, the fact that I've helped in some way, some people with some of the struggles they're having is by far and away the thing I'm most happy and proud of that I've achieved. I agree. It's the same for me, actually, Beth. It's the small things in a way. It's when you get an email from somebody just saying, oh, wow, you know, I was just about to throw in the towel or something and then I read or whatever it was and, yeah, it helped me. And it's just so, it's uh, very profound, isn't it, when that happens? And I, I think, yes, it's a great sort of reward when that happens. Did you know, because certainly I didn't when I did mine, but did you know when you set up your D for Dementia blog in 2012, well, number one, I was going to ask you, did you feel you had to wait until your dad died so that emotions weren't as raw and perhaps so that you had more time to do it as well? Did you know, though, when you did set it up, what it would lead to? Had you got any idea what you were going to do from it? No, absolutely not. No. So my plan was that I would, the blog would be a little sort of hobby. 
Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to share some of the things that had helped us with my dad. The reason I didn't set it up before he um, before he died was twofold, really. First of all, as you said, I was incredibly busy. I didn't want to be um, mm. focusing on writing. I know a lot of people have written through, you know, supporting a loved one with dementia or, or with other conditions. But for me, I just I couldn't have that focus, really. But also, secondly, because we'd had very mixed experiences, I was absolutely terrified of sharing. I didn't want to share a vision of perfection when it wasn't a vision of perfection. I wanted to be able to show both sides of the story. Mm. And I was absolutely terrified of doing that whilst dad was alive in case it impacted upon his care. Right. Because, of course, it's a public forum. Mm. And because we had had some very serious conversations relating to my dad's care. So from that autumn 2011 period onwards, when the management of, of this care home changed, I was pleading with CQC to come in and um, review my dad's care. And I was trying to move him, mm. finding it incredibly difficult to do that at the point where he did aspirate on his vomit. So, you know, we were having some seriously big struggles. And apart from the fact it's very consuming, I um I didn't want to airbrush that out of the picture because I feel as much as I want people to learn from the amazing experiences we had and be inspired to try music, to try life story work, to use nature and the outside because that's so powerful as well it was for my dad. I don't want them to believe that everything is is perfect and rosy because problems do exist and where there are issues they need to be dealt with and that needs to happen quickly because it's people's lives we're talking about. Mm. Mm. And so what was the first thing that happened that really made you think, gosh, there's something in this more than me writing a blog? It was two things, really. So I made contact with a dementia research charity down in Bristol called Brace. And I think I made the approach to them and they invited me to come and speak at some at a series of conferences they were holding mm. down in the in the southwest, which I agreed to. They were my first ever speaking engagements. And they're dementia terrified. research, aren't they, Charity? They are, yes. Mm. They're a small charity, but mm. they do some amazing work. And I've since become an ambassador for them. I've done a lot of work with them. And then secondly, I was shortlisted for a Roses Media Award. Mm. So the precursor to the Older People in the Media Awards was the Roses mm. Media Awards. And I was shortlisted in 2012 for one of those, the autumn of that year. Mm. I lost out to Louis Theroux. He'd made some dementia programmes. How dare he? <laughs> and I um, <laughs> I lost out to those. You can't really beat the power of the BBC. Um, <laughs> but that was when I think I probably really realized going to that award ceremony I, I kind of realized oh okay there's probably something in this and I, I was getting mm. so many followers and mm. I was getting inquiries to work with people and to be involved with organizations and meeting influential people and mm. I think my story in some ways was at that time relatively unique in that I experienced this with my dad had started when I was really young mm. um, a lot of people obviously support someone when they're an adult themselves so an older parent or a grandparent but my experience started when I was much younger than that because my mum and dad had me when they were quite a bit older mm. so that I think yeah those were probably the two turning points in, in 2012 and by 2013 as you've alluded to the G8 Dementia Summit and that's when my work with McIntyre began and a lot of other stuff happened. That was when it all just became very, very hectic and it's not really stopped being hectic since. <laughs> no, that really hit me though when I, um, as I said in the intro, you know, when I first encountered you, what hit me was, yes, number one was how young you were, but number two was the length of time. It was a long time for you, wasn't it? I mean, I often think it was quite a long time with me and my mum because she lived for about eight or nine years in a care home. But I mean, for you... It was a really long time, 19 years. 
It was. I mean, my dad had, you know, he had a very strong heart. Mm. So although, as you know, with vascular dementia, mm. someone's having these these little mini strokes, mm. these TIAs, mm. he had those over a series of many years. Mm. But they were very small. And although they were starting to affect his abilities and his cognition, he was still managing to live, you know, relatively okay. There were elements of neglect in, you know, not looking after himself and things mm. like that. But, you know, it was only when he collapsed from a bigger stroke and was mm. taken to hospital that things really dramatically changed. And I, I distinctly remember, obviously, we were going in to visit him in the hospital and he, he tried to break out. He tried to, at one point, he'd, he'd been found near the railway line in his pyjamas and stuff like that. But there was one very distinct day we, we walked in and his bed was empty in the ward. And of course, you have this horrible panic. Yeah. You know, goodness, what's happened? Where's my loved mm. one been taken? And you instantly think, well, it must be the mortuary, mustn't it? I mean, you just mm. fast forward mm. to this this mm. awful scenario. Mm. I said to the nurse, you know, where's my dad? And they said, um, said, oh, he's um, he, he's been moved. I said, well, yes, where to? She said, oh, the elderly mentally infirm unit. Mm. I said, why on earth has he mm. gone there? Mm. She said, well, he's got dementia. And I'm like, well, that's not a great way to find out that piece of information, is it? You're kind of reeling. From is that, that how you that found experience. out? That's how we found out, yeah. Gosh. Literally. And the elderly mentally infirm unit, as it turned out, was basically a hut out the back of the hospital. Yeah. It was where you put older people with dementia who yeah. really didn't matter. Yeah. EMIs became sort of sad to say, but they became sort of notorious, didn't they? Absolutely horrendous. It was mm. very short staffed. Mm. We went there and we literally, it was me and my mum, and we said, mm. Look, we want to see the consultant. It was a Friday night, and she, they said, Oh, she's not back in until Monday. And we said, well, sorry, yeah, but you yeah, get the yeah. consultant or we're taking my dad home. And it was amazing how quickly she came in from her gardening mm. on the Saturday mm. to come and talk to us. And mm. she did explain a lot. But the place was very short staffed. My dad lived on baked beans. And when he was sent back there the second time after the six months in the residential home and the strangling incident and all of that, he spent three months in that exact same unit again. And he lost half his body weight mm. because there was no attention to detail at all. It really was a place where you just put people it was almost like you just were expecting people to kind of die and it might be convenient mm. if they did. Yeah, it's like sort of holding pen, isn't it? it? The other thing that strikes me when you talk, Beth, and I sometimes feel this myself, sorry, I think we might have a lot of this, I feel this myself, because I think <laughs> in this conversation, which might be really annoying for people, sorry. Um, but because you've obviously repeated this and things trip off your tongue, I want to pick you up on a couple because I know myself, when you walk into... A care home or a hospital and that bed is empty or there are other moments when you get that phone call and they say this is the consultant and you think well I'm used to a call from the carer or the nurse even but it's because and you just you go there's this roller coaster isn't it your heart jumps into your mouth and you think this is it this is it yes. okay yeah. and you sort of you feel this kind of clench around your heart you start to gather yourself, to strengthen yourself, to deal with the blow of the news, which you think is the final piece of news. And then it's not. It might be that the consultant's phoning to say, I don't know, but something routine. And you feel this sort of relief flood through you. But these things, as you and I repeat them now, just come out. And when you talk about it and you talk so fast, and I think, yeah, but you were there you went through it and other people right now, right now, as you and I speak on a Monday morning, are going through it. Somebody somewhere is walking into a hospital ward and the bed's empty or a crisis hasn't been dealt with correctly. And I just think that's, you know, that's why I do what I do anyway, is to just say you're not alone with that because we've been there, we understand. And sometimes in the retelling of these stories, it can become almost like a story. 
Yes. And then you yeah, have to remind yourself. You did live it. We you did, did live it. It, it did yeah. happen. And your dad, I don't want to upset you, but you know, when you sort talk about aspirating on his own vomit or, and the way, you know, it's just so awful, I suppose is what I'm saying. It's just so hard. It's so difficult. And I want people to know that when you and I and other people like us talk about it, my God, it might sound a bit glib sometimes, but we really understand. It's just shocking. It is shocking, yeah. And I've been through it. I've been through it twice more since. So my father-in-law in South Africa has, since my dad died, he's lived and died with vascular dementia as well. And my aunt, uh, we just had the first anniversary of my aunt's death. Um, oh, so, I'm so sorry. So Gosh. in 2020, uh, the, the autumn of 2020, she had a fall. She was taken to hospital. The classic sort of older person has a fall. Yeah. She'd been living with dementia for a few years and my uncle had been sort of caring for her. And then they went through a period of a few months where things were really, really difficult before mm. she died with a succession of carers coming into the home and things like that. And, and you're right, it is just so difficult and there are people who are going through this right now. For me, it was always those phone calls in the middle of the night, so yeah. from the care home, that to say, yeah. we've called an ambulance yeah. because your dad, yeah. you know, he's got a temperature or his mm. breathing's not mm. very good. Or He had so many trips in and out of hospital yeah, and your heart yeah. sinks and yeah. you're, you're frantically putting on some clothes and you're yeah. rushing to the hospital and it's just awful. It's awful. and But th at the same time, when he died, people said to me, you must be so relieved it's over. It's done now. You don't have to worry anymore. And I said at the end of my, my G8 film, I said I would have my dad back in a heartbeat, dementia and everything it brings. I would have him back because he was my dad. Mm -hmm. He had dementia, but he was my dad. And I do still to this day very passionately believe that I wish, I don't wish his suffering to have continued because he did at the end, I think it was suffering. Not in the early years, and I'm very much a supporter of dementia language, and I think we can support people to have a good life. Wendy Mitchell, for example, one of your previous guests has talked extensively about about what a, a good life with dementia can look like and what, what, what she achieves and does, oh, and, and it's amazing. I love um, Wendy. I think she's brilliant. I think she's absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, towards the end of my dad's life, it was all pretty grim, aspirating mm. on your own vomit, mm. being doubly incontinent, mm. being mm. immobile, mm. so many awful, awful things. And um, and I think, yeah, you're right, we have to get the message across to people that, you know, what they're going through, it. others of us have gone before, and it is very, very hard. But, mm. yeah. And what, what do you think, Beth, in all your years of, I mean, you've been in this, in this sort of world for longer than I have? Well, big question, difficult answer. But do you think things are at all getting better? And if so, in what way? And where could we be moving quicker? So I think the focus on dementia that's come along, so that the first Prime Minister's challenge on dementia from then Prime Minister David Cameron happened in just before my dad died, so we're talking 10 years ago. Mm. And I think the renewed focus has meant that there's been more training more awareness i'm not talking specifically about things like dementia friends which are great within the community but when we're talking about health and care professionals they need a significantly higher level of training and support and, and i've been very fortunate in my work to have provided that for some individuals so i think that side of it has improved but there are still some massive massive problems there are problems around funding there are problems around staffing we're still not providing that post-diagnostic support that people need yeah. that early intervention uh, yeah. yeah um 
to help people. I mean, I, I would give everyone Wendy Mitchell's book as a starting point because, yeah. you yeah. know, it, it, it tells you some of the things you can do. Mm. If we can support people to live at home for longer mm. and to live as well as possible at mm. home mm. and support their families to support them as mm. well as we can. Mm. And mm. if we have some low-level intervention whereby actually you might have a well-being support worker who comes in. I'm not going to call it respite, but mm. you know what I mean. We have yeah. someone who just comes in and creates that different dynamic and helps and we keep people independent. We get them to support them to still make meals and, yeah. and be proactive so facil- what they facilitating do. and supporting, not taking away their dep- independence, isn't it? And she, she's all about that. And her tips are so simple sometimes, like just putting a piece of sticky tape on the edge of a stair or taking the the doors off cupboards. Or that's why I I love her because it's so practical and simple, and yet sometimes quite profound as well. But she's got a great way about her, Wendy. Absolutely. And it's just this idea that we enable people to live as well as possible for as long as possible. Mm. Because actually most people don't want to go into a care home. Mm. My dad wouldn't have wanted to be in a care Mm. home. We weren't given a choice back then. These days, I would hope it would be different. You know, you've got options like living care, which are a lot more sort of well known now, Mm. you know, and and some of the domiciliary care options, you know, I I can't stand 15 minute visits. What on earth can you do for someone Mm. in 15 minutes? Mm. It's just crazy. My view is that although we have moved forward, we haven't moved far enough. We have a very, very long way to go. One of the pieces of work I did when I worked with the Department for Health and Social Care was around post-diagnostic support, and there was a declaration that was created during that time. And if we could actually deliver on that universally without a postcode lottery, it would make such a big difference. What was the declaration? It was it was a declaration signed up by lots of sort of leading organisations, Alzheimer's Society, etc. You know, signed up to it, and it was basically to talk about the things that we could do for people, providing information, providing support, enabling independence, choice and control. You know, and, and we just don't do this consistently enough and well enough. I mean, one of the roles I now have is I'm a peer, a memory service peer reviewer, and memory services can choose to go through that process. And those that do have to evidence quite a lot about what how they support people after a diagnosis. Mm. And that is just so important. Well, I think imme- immediately after diagnosis is very important, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. You can't just give someone a pack of information and send them away. Well, often they can't um, read it, can they? People say, I'm given a pamphlet and I've just told them I can't read properly anymore. Exactly. Yeah, and you t- I know you've talked with Wendy extensively and she's talked about the Zoomettes. Yes, yes, the, the Zoomettes, wonderful name, are a group of women living with dementia who meet once a week, don't they? And that, that peer support. Absolutely. Not enough people know about those options for peer support, those deep groups, Dementia Alliance International, some mm. of those organisations that are out there and that mm. can support. And likewise for family carers, mm. Dementia Carers Count, Tide, mm. organisations exist. These things weren't there when my dad was alive, mm. but they mm. are there now. Mm. I say so often that one of the things that I'm really passionate about is that carers have some education. I've talked about how we train and educate the professional workforce. But what do we do for families? Mm. We're saying to people, go care for your husband, go care for your wife, your mum, your dad. But you need some information. You need Mm. to know Mm. what to do for the best, what that Mm. looks like. And, um, you know, you've got those resources through people like Dementia Carers Camp, but not enough people know about it. Absolutely. Well, at the end, I will uh, flag up a few of those that you've rattled through there, uh, Beth, because they are extremely important and you're so right. Another thing that was talked about a lot and doesn't ever seem to have got anywhere, there may be a very good reason for it, is um, many years ago now, somebody said to me, wouldn't it be a good idea? Somebody with dementia said, I would have loved it if when I got my diagnosis, and obviously the doctor, whoever's delivering the diagnosis, will know they're about to make it. So 
would it be possible to have somebody who was just six months or a year down the line had got over the initial shock and was now thinking to themselves, actually, yeah, okay, this is not great. As, as Wendy says, it's a bummer of a diagnosis, but you know, it is possible to live a, a, a different life. Why not just get somebody else living with dementia a bit further down the line, just say, do you want a cup of coffee? I mean, literally, yeah. as you get the diagnosis, as I say, at the memory clinic or at the GP surgery, to then walk out almost literally into a cafe, into another room in the consultancy, you know, the GP's uh, surgery, and just have a chat. Oh, Pippa, it's so interesting that you said that. So beyond dementia, I do some wider sort of health and care work. And um, one of the things I've been working on this year is a piece around spinal injuries and what, what happens to people when they have a new spinal injury. So one of the things I've discovered as a result of this is that one of the very first things that happens is a bedside visit. So while the person is still in bed, presumably yeah. recovering from yeah. either their operation or whatever's happened, with a spinally injured person who is a peer support worker who works for the Spinal Injuries Association, And that is one of the very first contacts that a person has. And they have those opportunities to have that emotional conversation. How the hell have you coped? You know, what are these practical tips? And the signposting and the support happens from that point onwards. So we know we can do it. We can do it for other conditions and disabilities. Why can't we do it for dementia? So are they doing it successfully with spinal injuries? Yes, apparently it's routinely happened for years. Wow. I know it's revelation for me as well. Wow. Yeah, I think that's the other thing, isn't it, that I'm sure you might have felt, I certainly have, that why don't we share more across sort of boundaries, as it were? Why is everything so siloed? Why can't dementia charities, or not just charities, actually, but any organisations, why don't people share information more? Why are people forever reinventing the wheel? Because a lot of things will be appropriate in different settings. You know, why can't we just sort of cross those boundaries a bit more? Absolutely. I mean, it seems the most obvious thing, doesn't it? Mm, mm. So I know you've given me a few things. So you've said if you want to talk to people about what you know now that you didn't, and I think we all go on a huge learning curve when somebody we love develops dementia. One of them was to live in the moment, which is a valuable sort of ethos to live by in, in all sorts of occasions and times of one's life. But say why you think that. What's shown you that? I mean, any sort of little incidents or why do you think that? I think for me, it's about, you know, your loved one. So dementia is a terminal diagnosis. You know that you don't have forever. And it's very easy to do that fast forward to doom, gloom and disaster. Hmm. We touched on it a little bit earlier, haven't we, about, you know, that that dread when the phone rings and you think the conversation is going to be the conversation, the final conversation. Hmm. But actually to live in the moment, for me, I found with my dad's dementia, it was very much a case of good days and bad days. And I think that's very Mm -hmm. replicable for most people. And I think you do just have to live in the moment and not look too far ahead. Because I think if you look towards that scenario whereby the person's dying and you're having their funeral, you miss those those beautiful little moments. Like I said to you with with the singing with with my dad, when he could no longer hold a conversation, he could still sing a song. Mm. Those little moments where we would finish a song together and we would just smile at each other. There were no words needed. It Mm. was just that moment. And another example would have been, it would always take my dad outside. There was never enough care staff to do it. 
but when we went there we would take my dad outside and and just to wheel him out into the spring or summer sunshine with his little panama hat on mm-hmm. and just sit sit outside it was a, a beautiful rural sort of location so you'd get some birds occasionally a squirrel or a rabbit in the garden as well and just to be able to sit and take in that moment i'm a great believer in the five ways to well-being i i talk about it a lot i train on it a lot as well with staff and one of the elements of that is taking notice and I think in those moments where you sit down with somebody and you just take notice of something, you know, they stick with you. Those moments are precious. So many people tell me that. So many people. And often people who haven't even had a particularly close relationship with whoever it might be, their mother or their father or relative, say one of the few, few rare blessings that dementia might give is sometimes it can bring you closer, weirdly, because you do then. Everything has to sort of slow down and you do just sit and be with somebody and you never normally do that and it can give you such a lot wendy talks about that it's very interesting that i think how we never do that we're too busy we're too fast we're too on the way somewhere that we never actually just sit and be wendy even talked about the fact that she's um a very good photographer now and i read that she was saying yes but you notice things more because actually your brain does slow down with dementia, she notices things such as a butterfly on a, or, or any insect, on a flower petal. Mm-hmm. Before she wouldn't have noticed it because she'd have been walking along quickly. She says she used to live her life. So, so I'm using Wendy a lot, but I've just, I, like you, I've just read her <laughs> yeah. recent book. Um, and um, it's just so interesting that, and, and as ever with dementia, which is one of the great positives I've found from it, is that... It's a life lesson. It's not limited to dementia. I do now try and if I'm going on a walk with the dogs, which is difficult because obviously I'm trying to keep two dogs, mad dogs in in order, but you try and take in your surroundings. You try and look, you try and see, you try and be in a way that I never did before. I'm sure it's a bit of age coming in there, but you know, I do try and live in the moment myself a bit more. And I found actually my children have kind of have, have, um, have amplified that for me. So my daughter would, you know, you'll be walking along and there'll be a hedgerow and she'll spot the ladybird on yeah. the leaf that nobody else would spot. Yeah. I'm all, mummy, look at that. And it is just, it is that living in that moment and taking notice. And as you say, we are just so busy and, and it flies by, but dementia forces you to slow down. Yeah, yeah, which was one of the, one of the rare sort of gifts it gives you, I think. So, and, and in fact, it's very interesting because looking at the list of things you gave me that you know now, they're all bound up in that because it was live in the moment, appreciate the small things, which is what we're talking about, <laughs> make the most of your time with the person who's living with dementia and never give up. And in a way, all those things are speaking to the same sort of emotion, aren't they? And they're very much inspired by little moments. There's so yeah, many anecdotes yeah. I could tell you about my dad, but there would be one particular one and, and it, it's resonated with me ever since. So I remember a Christmas day, we'd gone into dad's care home. We'd done presents. He was never fussed about presents. We'd had some lunch with him. We'd, we'd done all of that. And Casablanca had come on the TV. Mm. So we were, we were about to leave um, and he was going to watch, he was gonna watch mm. the film and probably have a little snooze. Mm. And it was a point where he had almost no conversation at all. He very mm. rarely said anything at all. But he, in that moment, I remember just as we were going to, we were sort of saying goodbye, he just looked up at me and he said, thank you for everything. Mm -hmm. And it just took my breath away. I I just, 
you know, I was like everything, but I haven't done enough. There's never enough. There'll never be enough. But he recognized something in him, recognized mm. that, you know, we were trying our best to, to do what we could for him. Another example would be when, as I've alluded to with my dad's dysphagia, we had to support him to eat and we would spoon foods and drinks to him because he couldn't manage that. But there'd just be odd little days where he would take the spoon and he would try and feed himself. Mm. And again, that would almost take your breath away. You'd be like, wow. Mm. And I remember a doctor once, one of the many times a GP came out to my dad and she said she was quite a young GP. She'd never met him before. And she's like, well, look, he's got no quality of life. He's got dementia. I don't really see any point in treating his infection. You know, should we just let nature take its course? And I remember turning around to her and saying, who are you to say he's got no quality of life? Mm. And the examples like when he would just take the spoon and feed himself, that said to me, I still want to live. I still Mm. want Mm. to Mm. be here with Mm. you. Mm. Mm. And those moments, as I say, it's such small, small things but they're so powerful and they stick with you long, long after the person's gone. Mm. Oh, that's a lovely sort of place to stop at, I think, Beth. And thank you for sharing these um, difficult, you know, they're difficult memories, actually, I think, for both of us. And sometimes, you know, one forgets that. So thank you for coming in. You're very, very informative now. You have so much, you have a wealth of knowledge and you're busy sharing it. And I'm full of admiration for you now, as I was when I first met you back in 2013. So well done for all you're doing, keep doing it. And I know you've got other ties now as well with your little children, but um, well done. And thank you very much for coming on Well I Know Now. Thank you, Pepper. It's been brilliant to speak to you. Beth really is where it all started for me. So I can't thank her enough for showing me what could be done through a blog, for kicking off my fifth series, for being so friendly and helpful whenever I've met her. After our recording today, she immediately messaged me with names, ideas, connections. And of course, my biggest thanks are for her extraordinary work in the dementia sector. It's this first and foremost, for which we all owe this young mother a tremendous debt of gratitude. Beth mentioned many carers organizations and here are just a few. There's Tide or together in dementia every day, a UK-wide network connecting carers and former carers, and this can be found at www.tide.uk.net. And there's Dementia Carers Count, a charity who support families and friends caring for someone with dementia, and they can be found at dementiacarers.org.uk. And then there's Dementia UK, with which Young Dementia UK has now merged. And this is a charity that supports and trains Admiral nurses, specialist dementia nurses, who provide invaluable help to those with dementia and their families. They can be found at www.dementiauk.org. And finally, there's the Alzheimer's Society, which can be found at alzheimers.org.uk. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.